Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Edwin Dorsey. He started the Bear Cave Substack account when he was still in college at Stanford. The Bear Cave features excellent analysis of potential short candidates. He performs deep dives into troubled companies. His work has resulted in his site becoming widely popular with over 50,000 subscribers, and he's frequently featured on Bloomberg Business Alerts, and he's well-known throughout the investing world. Personally, I'm a long-only investor, but I frequently take a look at his website to see if he's tagged anything I'm considering going long in. So his work is extremely useful, whether you're a short investor or a long investor. Welcome to the podcast, Edwin. VSG, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So how'd you first get interested in investing? I like the quote, you don't choose your passions, your passions choose you. And I just caught the investing bug from a really young age, like second grade. I was reading a ton about the stock market. My grandmother was kind enough to put a little bit of money in an E-Trade account and gave me the username and password so I could invest the money on her behalf. Managing a little bit of real money when you're a really young kid is pretty enticing. That only furthered my interest. And then by the end of high school, I was managing retirement accounts of a bunch of family members. And I was just totally investing obsessed. The big transition for me to the short side and getting more interested in short biased work happened freshman year of college, where by coincidence, I was introduced to two of the best short sellers out there. One was Mark Cajodes, who previously ran a short only fund and is now like this independent, prolific maverick short guy. And the other was Jim Carruthers, ran a short only fund called Sophos. So I interned at Sophos on and off for all four years of college. And that's kind of how I learned the ropes, met a lot of people, learned how to do real diligence. I also got in this tussle with this publicly traded babysitting platform called care.com, where I was criticizing them a lot. And that gave me a little bit of a following on Twitter. And then towards the end of college, I needed to get a job. And normally I would have worked at Sophos, this place I'd been interning for four years, but they were in the process of shutting down. So I needed to get hired somewhere else. And I thought I'm going to start this blog, The Bear Cave, where I'll talk about the short world and somebody will think I'm smart and hire me from it. But the newsletter, the blog became popular in its own right. And sooner or later, there's a few thousand people on it. I started charging for it and people would pay for it. And it just became my job. So I like to joke now, my entire job is sending six emails a month and that's it. That's kind of my rough art. That's fantastic. You said you met Mark Hodas and Jim Carruthers. I think those are very well-known investors. How, as a college student, did you get the opportunity to meet with them? So VSG, it was funny. So I was blogging a little on Seeking Alpha anonymously, where I would just like criticize companies, not taking a position necessarily, just writing my thoughts. And I've been really critical of this pharmaceutical company called Malincrot. And Malincrot had this drug called Actar, where they raised the price from $40 to $40,000 a vial, like complete price gouging, a lot of other nonsense going on with paying shady doctors to prescribe it. And I was criticizing them a lot on my like anonymous Seeking Alpha blog. And on the blog, I mentioned that I lived in Stanford, California, is that I was on campus, but I didn't say my age or anything. I just had it anonymous. And the people at Sophos were reading my blog. So then they eventually reached out to me, you know, just messaged me and said, hey, we don't know who you are, but you're writing some smart stuff on Malincott. Could you talk to us? And I said, yes. And we go for a lunch. And they were expecting me to be like a professor or a real adult. They were not expecting me to be an 18-year-old kid who had randomly been criticizing this company. And I guess I made an impression or something because they offered me an internship. And that was awesome. I was really lucky in having an amazing first boss in Jim Carruthers and the people at Sophos. I thought very, very highly of them. And Mark was a little different. Mark, there was another young short seller, Chris Dross, who gave me his phone number and said, we'd probably be good to meet. And the first time I called Mark, he just hung up on me. He's like, who are you? And I thought, wow, this guy is really rude. <laughs> but I called him two or three more times. And eventually, 
want him over. And the famous little story here is he said I could come to his chicken farm in Northern California. And as a freshman in college, I skipped a day of classes and I, I took a very expensive Uber, a 90 minute Uber from campus up to his chicken farm in Northern California. And he got me excited about short selling. Because I don't know if you know Mark, but He's definitely a personality. He wears pink Crocs. He's got a ton of energy. <laughs> and he convinced me that looking into companies on the short world, you can actually make an impact. It's a little more fulfilling than maybe just buying stocks passively on the long side. And he also convinced me to get on Twitter because that's where a lot of the action was. And that became key in starting the newsletter. So I like to joke, if my two early mentors were in microcaps, I'd probably be here talking about microcaps. If my two early mentors were in private equity, maybe I would have drifted in that direction. But two of my earliest mentors were like absolutely phenomenal short sellers. So that's where I drifted. And that's how I spend a lot of my time looking at companies to criticize. That's very cool. You kind of remind me of young Steve Jobs. He went out to the CEO of HP when he was younger and asked for some advice and things like that. And you seem like you have that kind of drive and energy. Yeah, I definitely wasn't shy about cold emailing people. Like, I think I cold emailed more people than just about any other college student. One, one story I like to tell is there was this headshot in San Francisco. They refused to reply to all my emails. Just as a freshman, you sometimes have a confidence you don't have when you're like a more mature adult. I was annoyed none of them wanted to reply to meet with me. So I took the Caltrain up to the San Francisco offices of this hedge fund and just like assumed they'd meet with me if I wanted to pitch them a stock. And I go to these fancy office buildings and the security guard is, do you have a meeting? And I'm like, no, but can I go up and just see if they'll meet with me? He says, of course not. So I'm in this lobby for a hedge fund. And I just pull out my LinkedIn and I start LinkedIn DMing all the employees of this hedge fund saying, hey, I'm a college freshman. I want to pitch you guys stock ideas. Meet with me. I'm in your lobby now. And they ended up meeting with me. And that's how I met a bunch of people in the San Francisco hedge fund community. So I was like insanely persistent in reaching out to people when I was like a young student. That's awesome. That's so inspirational. So you mentioned that you can make a difference with shorting. Is that what drew you to it? The idea that instead of simply making money in the market on top of that, you could actually make a difference in the real world through short activism? I think it was definitely appealing. My kind of like little claim to fame in college is I helped expose problems with this publicly traded babysitting platform, care.com, where I was early to highlight a lot of safety issues there. And that got a lot of press. And that showed me like, yeah, you can legitimately impact these companies you write about for the better. Mark Cajotes has single-handedly exposed multiple frauds and has probably resulted in people going to jail who otherwise would be like under no scrutiny just by his persistence on Twitter and highlighting a lot of this misconduct. So yeah, it's definitely kind of cool where you can maybe shape the world a little bit. And with short selling, I like to say a good activist short seller functions a little bit like a journalist where you're just highlighting misconduct and getting everybody aware of it. Yeah, that's really cool. So you started the Substack in 2020 with the focus on shorts. Was there something about the market environment at that time that you thought would be a great opportunity to start a Substack about shorting? Not really, actually. It was February 2020. I was a senior in college and I was interviewing a lot of hedge funds because so close I couldn't go work there because they were winding down. So I was interviewing at a bunch of funds in New York and I just, I don't know, the vibes to me were a little off where generally I think if you come in as a first year analyst, you're expected to do a lot of modeling, you're expected to do a lot of grunt work, given a lot of independence. And I thought, you know, wrongly or rightly, if I start this substack and hopefully show people I'm really smart and can do great work, then I can get a job with more independence and more freedom and maybe like higher pay or it would be like a good way just to elevate myself to get the best job opportunities possible writing online. And that's the thing I've seen over and over back to like how I met the people at Sophos originally is like writing online is a networking superpower. So it was less about the market and more about just I'm a senior with a few months left before graduating. So I want to do this. Now, I got super, super lucky. February 2020, I started. March 2020, the pandemic hit. And then everybody flies home. 
And I'm like sitting at home with a ton of free time. So I can put a lot of time into this newsletter. But all these potential readers are now spending a lot of time scrolling Twitter, looking for stuff to read. So there was no better time in history to start an email newsletter, I believe, than February 2020. Because Substack had just matured and makes it really easy to start an email newsletter. You get a ton of time with the pandemic and like not having much to do other than being indoors looking at stocks. And you have a huge, huge, huge audience of people who are like on the internet now a ton looking for stuff to read and like new newsletters and stuff to sign up for. So I got kind of really lucky with that coincidental timing. September 2020, I turned on the paywall for it where people could pay for access to my like mini deep dives on specific companies. And within a month or two, it hit 100 grand in annual recurring revenue. And it was just that's a full time income, especially if it's growing. And that's amazing. That's all I've done since. I have one other small, more long biased publication where I interview interesting managers, but 80, 90% of my time is spent on the barricade looking at companies that I feel are misleading investors or harming customers. So at a time when most seniors in college are agonizing over the whether or not what job they're going to get, you basically created your own six-figure income. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit tough to get it started, right? So when you start a newsletter, how do you get your first signups is kind of the key thing. So I cold emailed every college investment club in the US to try to get all the students to sign up. I DM'd individually like all 4,000 Twitter followers I had at the time or something like that. And that literally took days, but that got a bunch of signups. It was a little tough to get the first thousand people or so. But after that, as long as you put out good content and like keep sharing on Twitter, it'll grow. And again, got really, really lucky with the timing there and just it all worked out. But yeah. Fantastic. So moving on to shorts and shorting. So my first question I have about it is what are the best kinds of shorts? Are they frauds? Are they companies with deteriorating businesses? Is it more about the management? What is the best kind of short setup? So VSG, I have to like disclose this upfront. I don't short any of the stocks I write about in my newsletter. I only make money from reader subscriptions to it. In fact, one common misconception about me is I actually don't short stocks at all. I write a lot. I talk to a lot of short sellers. I spend 50 plus hours a week following the short world, but I'm not shorting stuff myself. That said, my sweet spot, what I view as the best type of thing, my core competency, it's one to $10 billion US listed public companies that are a little off the beaten path, generally in the tech or consumer space that I feel are misleading investors or harming customers. That is kind of my key thing. So frauds are generally really tough to time. I don't like stuff that is very well trafficked like a Tesla or Carvana. Maybe it's a good short, maybe it's not a good short, but if everybody's talking about it, I kind of feel like there's not a lot. It's not low-hanging fruit. But every once in a while, I think if you're really diligent and follow the bad actors, is you'll find these one, two, three billion dollar companies that are completely off the beaten path, that don't have high short interest, and are that just like egregiously mispriced or the model, the market just doesn't understand the business. And there's like a lot of ethics and management issues. That is my key thing. I like betting against people I feel like are dishonest or not great operators that are like harming or antagonizing their customer base. So like aren't providing a service that delights people and are misleading investors in some sort of way. And generally you find this with the really big market caps, there's some good big market cap shorts, but Generally, I think the best shorts tend to be, at least for my newsletter, in this like $1 to $10 billion market cap. Because below $1 billion market cap, people just don't care. It's too volatile. A $100 million nonsense company can easily go up 10x to a billion. But for some reason, the $1 to $10 billion space tends to be my sweet spot. Right. So it's big enough where people can will eventually care about it, but it's not so big that it's not under the intensive scrutiny where they can't get away with it. They think they can get away with it, but it's still in a in the right ballpark where it could probably devolve. Yeah, and it's tough for these completely non... One bucket of companies I like to talk about are companies that I just say lack economic substance. There's no there. There's like no substance to the company. And for companies like that, they rarely eclipse a billion dollar market cap. You can promote just a nonsense shell entity up to about a billion dollars. But once you get into the big leagues, it's just like there's not enough capital and there's no institutional money that'll like 
back a company that lacks economic substance. So one example I frequently give was this company called Ag Eagle Aerial Systems, ticker UAVS. They claimed to make next generation delivery drones, and they said they were going to partner with Amazon to help deliver packages and be a next generation delivery company. But the moment you just dug into their SEC filings, it's like they've spent $40,000 last year on R&D. Their actual product is a remote controlled drone like hooked up to a GoPro. It's a complete nonsense. The investors involved, a lot of them have been involved in penny stock pump and dump promotions in the past, yet somehow it reaches a billion dollar market cap on just these false rumors of an Amazon partnership. And then I wrote about it knowing like it's not going to get too much bigger than this. Long story short, over the next 12 months, it declined 95% because typically the companies, once they get big, they'll just start issuing a ton of stock and selling a ton of stock. And that's what causes it to decline. But companies like that, it's just such a layup compared to like the much harder work of short big cap tech or something. Yeah. Why do you think that the SEC doesn't address these things soon enough? It always seems like the SEC is kind of playing cleanup after the fact. Like, why can't they detect these things and prevent them from really harming investors and customers? So that's a great question. One quote I like from Jim Chanos is, you should think of the SEC and regulators as like financial archaeologists. They're really good at going in after the fact and subpoenaing documents and seeing what happened and trying to hold people accountable. But they're not good at proactively preventing it. So they're good at going in after the fact, not so good at proactively preventing it. I think there's a few reasons for that. One, if you look at the SEC is all lawyers. The SEC is not comprised of people like you and me who are like looking to find stocks that might be overvalued or undervalued. It's really lawyers focusing on disclosures. And I think the SEC would argue they're really a disclosure agency. They want full, accurate, and complete disclosures. And as long as a company is giving that, their job in some ways is done, and it's up to the market to price these companies. And to be fair, a lot of these like nonsense companies that reach billion-dollar market caps, it's like you can see from their SEC filings and disclosures that it's complete nonsense. They are disclosing. They only spend $40,000 on R&D, or their headquarters is only 500 square feet, or all these other significant red flags, or their executives you can look up and see like have been involved in a lot of nonsense in the past. So to the SEC's credit, even though they might not be explicitly stopping it, they are promoting a lot of disclosure around these names that makes my job a little easier. The other thing I'd want to point out is I think anytime you see tons of retail money sloshing around, you've seen in the last two, three years, tons of retail money, tons of SPAC, that causes a lot of the mania rather than when it's more like institutional professional investors. And I think that kind of contributed to a lot of the excessive nonsense in the last few years. I like to see a lot of easy money makes good people do bad things and bad people do worse things. And that makes the SEC's job tougher. Yeah. And you've seen a lot of that in the last few years, that's for sure. And I guess I see the SEC's perspective. I mean, they're saying like, hey, the docs are there. You guys just need to read them. <laughs> you wouldn't fall victim to this stuff. It's like, I love reading SEC comment letters. And for those who don't know, comment letters are informal correspondence between the SEC and a publicly traded company. And they're, you can find them right on Edgar, but a lot of investors don't look at them. And oftentimes it's just the SEC is shredding the company. It's just, hey, your revenue figure in page 30 doesn't match your claimed revenue in page 70. Like, what's up? And the company will just say, oh, there's a clerical error. There's a typo. Or there's a Scribner's mistake. It's just nonsense. And it's clear, you know, there's some big deficiency in this company. Their numbers can't even be consistent. And all you need to do is like, look on Edgar, look at the SEC comment letters, and you'll find these huge issues. But a lot of people don't know about that or do that diligence. Super interesting. When you're thinking about shorts, so how do you think about diversification among shorts? Because obviously, you want to own multiple situations that are going on. So how do you think about how fund or an individual should organize them in their portfolio? So this is a little more hypothetical for me because, you know, I, I'm not running a short book myself. Most short sellers advocate a lot of diversification in shorts. Like Jim Chano says, he never has a position greater than 5%. I'm not so sure that's like the right way to think about it. For me, 
I think a 1% position in some heavily shorted microcap is so much riskier than a 10% position in some like sleepy hospital read medical properties trust. So if I was running a short book, I would probably just have five, 10, 15 names that I felt comfortable doing in size, which means they can't be heavily shorted names. They can't be, you know, sub billion dollar market caps where they can really run against you. But I would probably focus on a lot of these sleepy big names that people don't talk about a ton to construct a short book that way. That's probably where my starting point would be. And there probably wouldn't be a lot of turnover and it would just need to be like more names that are like off the beaten path. Planet Fitness or The Joint. I recently wrote on Hershey's, which I think could be a decent short, but not something I think about as actively because it's not like I'm running a short book myself. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm still curious about your point of view on it because you're so knowledgeable about this. Something else I wanted to get your opinion on. So what do you think about shorting with some kind of momentum overlay? So one of the big problems in shorting, the way I see it is, you could get some kind of cult stock with a ton of momentum and you could get steamrolled if you're short. What do you think about adding some type of momentum overlay to that where you wait for the momentum and the mania to subside before you actually take a short position in the stock? Well, I think that's really smart. A little easier, more easy said than done. The saying Mark Cajotas likes is, you got to wait till the Jaguar's out of the tree. Don't be shorting it when it's making new all-time highs. Short it once all the information's out there. So I'd be kind of a big believer in shorting stuff once it's fallen 50% from the highs or stuff like that. I like to joke with Wirecard, there's tons of people who understood the story, understood the fraud, but lost tons of money shorting the stock. The best day to have shorted Wirecard was probably the day after it had fallen 60% after releasing the auditor results. Yeah, that's a good point. It was $2 billion of cash missing. Because even though it was down 60% that day, if you understood the story, you'd know it's going to zero. And you know it's going to zero fast and there's not like much room for chicanery anymore. So oftentimes it's shorting it after the Jaguars out of the tree is kind of key. And just understanding what you're dealing with. But generally speaking, I don't love to short the names that have heavy retail participation. I like more sleepy, off the bat, beaten path type things that no one's really talking about that I feel just is either like antagonizing their customer base or misleading investors in some way. Yeah, avoiding those big time cult stocks, probably. Like Tesla, like I don't understand why anybody in the world <laughs> want to be spending an hour thinking about shorting Tesla. Do you know how many billion dollar companies there are out there that are complete nonsense that are going to fall 90% over the next 12 months that you could take a sizable short position in, but instead you want to like bust your... I genuinely don't understand it, why anybody would want to spend any time thinking about Tesla or shorting Tesla when there's a lot more low-hanging fruit out there in the market. Yeah, I remember back in like 2017, I was hearing many, many very smart short pitches. And I would sit there and be like, that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. But uh, I could never bring myself to do it because I'm like, on the other hand, the people that own this are crazy. And then... (laughs) I don't want to go to war with them, so I'm going to stay out of it. (laughs) The one unique thing about the bear cave is I almost never, not only don't talk about valuation, don't really even talk about numbers. That's very different than most people. But the saying David Einhorn has that I think is very true is twice as silly valuation is just as silly as of a valuation. So these valuation short-term pressures or stuff like that. That's the type of stuff I'd like to avoid. I don't want to ever bet against a company I think will like be bigger in 10 years or will have some temporary hiccup. I don't want to bet against a company I think is providing like a very useful good or service to society and is like really delighting customers. I'm more looking for like the thing that's like a little scummy that's pissing a lot of people off that everybody would be like, okay, if it went away tomorrow. That's generally my type of thing. Now, now things vary, but that's generally like my sweet spot. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense to approach it that way versus trying to do it on valuation or, or something like that. So when you were talking about short characteristics, you wrote a good article where you wrote about some common characteristics of successful shorts. I thought it was pretty funny and I thought there were a lot of good points in there. So one of the things I thought you put in there was the CEO complains about short sellers. So why is that a good characteristic of a short? 
Oh yeah, that list. Generally, the best CEOs will be focused on operating and let the results speak for themselves. And I think the common line of thinking among a lot of short sellers is if a CEO is tacking shorts, it's because they've got something to hide. If the facts are on your side, pound the facts. If the facts aren't on your side, you pound the table and launch accusations and get into some sort of like nonsense. CEOs are just launching ad hominem attacks by people and are just so preoccupied with the stock price and the day-to-day -day movements and the people criticizing them. Generally, it's because there's like a lack of substance or some genuine problem in the business. Now, I don't think it's as big of an issue as maybe some other short people do. In fact, the first time I mentioned that list, made that list, I don't think I included it on there. And other short people were like, you need to talk about CEOs who complain about shorts. There are some exceptions to the rules where Elon Musk, lover him or hate him, he's attacked shorts quite a lot and it's done pretty well. So, but generally speaking, great CEOs are very operationally focused and don't care about the day-to-day -day movements of the stock and understand stock prices in their control in the long run. And as a result, don't care too much about short-term criticism. Gotcha. And another one on that list I thought was pretty funny was you talked about companies who get naming rights for stadium. Why are they bad, bad companies? <laughs> so when a company is spending a lot of money, I think it's just a scene as a thing that you do when you become bureaucratic and there's a lot of corporate excess and you do it kind of at the peak of a fads or you do it when like you're not fully aligned to shareholders because I understand that if you're a CEO in a town and you spend a lot of money to name the stadium after you, it kind of bolsters your company in that town and it bolsters your personal image. I'm not sure it's the best for like the shareholder return. And I think generally that scene is kind of questionable because it calls into question whether or not you're like operating it for the full benefit of shareholders. I think just a lot of the frauds of the past have Enron named a field after itself. Sometimes I wonder with these smaller cap names, if these stadium right deals come with any sort of kickback. Remember Bank of California, I think paid $100 million for soccer naming rights. And this is a $2 billion publicly traded bank. That whole deal never made any sense to me. And part of my speculation is, is it a way for management to funnel money back to themselves somehow or to some friends? Or other times, like medical properties trusts did a lot where they sponsored a lot of University of Alabama fields or football games or the company donated a lot of money there. And then the executives from that company would get like box office tickets to all the games. And that's an example of a company using corporate resources to maybe further the personal goals of some executives. That can be questionable. So naming rights and like high profile charitable activities are two things that are not always bad, but piques my interest is kind of odd, especially if it doesn't make sense. If it's a smaller company doing it and it seems disproportionate to their size, it's like, hey, this makes no sense at all. Yeah, I can't think of a single situation either where a company that had their name on a stadium did well after getting the name on the stadium. Like, I can't really think of a single example where that happened. I mean, look at so. FTX Arena. It's already like, <laughs> you know, it's trouble. So these big rights deals don't necessarily make a ton of sense. Yeah, that's good. So let's talk about some of your specific shorts and examples of things that I think were pretty interesting. So one I thought was super interesting was EverQuote. So you wrote up this stock at about $40. Now it's at $7. So what was the issue with EverQuote? And how'd you come across that? And what was your thought process there? Oh, my goodness. You're going back to October 2020. EverQuote was the <laughs> second company I ever wrote on. This is a while ago. And you hit the nail on the head with it. So... <laughs> So this is the type of thing that I love all the time. So EverQuote to investors, it was like a marketplace to help consumers compare car insurance quotes. To most investors, I think they own EverQuote.com. People go to their website, they get good auto insurance quotes and buy auto insurance through their website. The reality is EverQuote was like a combination of 100 super questionable auto insurance lead generation sites. So they own tons of sites like cheapautoinsurance.com or autoinsurancesavingstoday.com or autocoveragedeals.com, like all these like really cookie cutter nonsense sites that were virtually identical to one another promoted on like the shady sites of the web. 
The key thing is their sites wouldn't actually compare auto insurance. They would ask consumers a lot of questions about themselves, promise you auto quotes at the end, you'd give all your information and they wouldn't give you any quotes. They just give you links to go back to Geico or Progressive and apply for auto insurance there without giving you a quote. So it kind of sucker consumers into giving their info for no clear benefit. And EverQuote would go around and they just sell these leads as lead generation to all these auto companies. So it really, it was a bad deal for the consumer. You waste 15 minutes thinking you're going to get auto quotes at the end. You don't. You would have just been better off going direct to Geico or Progressive or to whoever. EverQuote just gets your information to sell off. And now you're going to be spammed for the next three months of your life. So there seemed to be right here with the company a big difference between how investors use it. Oh, it's like actually a useful marketplace for car insurance that helps people save money to what it actually was, which is just trafficking in the weird corners of the Internet, pissing people off, not giving them quotes, just scamming them to get their info and auction it off. And it's like, I guess that business has some value. I don't think it's particularly ethical. And it's also just not the type of thing that deserves high multiples. I forget what the multiples were, but it was aggressive. This is the type of business, if you want to value it, payday lender, which is three, four times earnings, not a sustainable, great growing business. Yeah, that was a, certainly a good one. Were there any other signs of unethical activity in the management of the company? Or was it primarily just about the horrible customer experience and the way that they were doing business? I think it was primarily the customer experience was awful and the business model didn't make a lot of sense. The executives were selling a lot of the stock too. And there was just tons of complaints to like FCC and other message boards about people's lives that were turned upside down just because they gave their phone number to an EverQuote site. For that, I don't think there was a clear cut case where management was awful, but yeah. Okay, cool. So another one that you really hit it out of the park with was Root Insurance. So you wrote that up at $250 in 2020, and now it is $11. So uh, <laughs> you want to tell us a little I, bit about that one? I love talking about Root VSG. So Root Insurance hit the market. It was a 2020 IPO. I wrote on them in December 2020, a few months after the IPO. And their whole thing was they had an app. You would download their app and their app would track your location 24-7 for two weeks while you were driving. And in theory, their app would use all this data to determine whether or not you were a good or bad driver based on the times you drove, the locations you drove, the speeds you, which you drove, your turning radius, the areas you drove, whether you take highways or side roads or whatever. And they said they did some huge competitive ed edge against all the other auto insurance because of their telematics capabilities, because they only underwrite good drivers. And when you only underwrite good drivers, you can give them better rates and be a profitable car insurance company. So that's kind of like the long pitch and gets this big multi-billion dollar valuation. And I just like, saw online a lot of people were complaining about them. I look into them a little more and you see like on all the message boards, there's tons of complaints about root insurance. Oftentimes, people saying, look, I sign up for Root and get a good rate, but then six months in, they raise it 30 40% for no reason, and they keep raising it, and they won't let me cancel. And then you looked at, there's this national database of like auto insurance companies that piles complaints, and Root's complaint rate per 10,000 policyholders was literally off the charts compared to all other insurance companies. I'm like, that's odd. So I start filing FOIA requests with a bunch of state insurance commissions and state attorneys general for consumer complaints. And there's just hundreds upon hundreds of consumer complaints against Root. And it was basically all just the same thing, which is I sign up for one rate. During the pandemic, all other auto insurance companies were like keeping rates steady or lowering rates under the pressure of regulators. Root was just raising them for like no clear reason on everybody, 30, 40% every six months. And hand in hand with that, making it very difficult to cancel. So I'll, I'd find letters from like lawyers saying, hey, I represent a lot of people in the Spanish speaking community. They signed up for these root policies and they can't even get out of it now, even though they're like being price gouged and they're like taking advantage of the Spanish speaking community who like doesn't have a phone number to call, can't figure out a way to cancel. It's a complete mess. It's like upending people's lives. And I just came to this conclusion. I don't think their telematics capabilities were that great. This is just a scummy car insurance company that's 
price gouging people in the pandemic. And in the pandemic, everyone was driving less. Accidents were going way down. So there was no reason to do these things, these price increases. And you'd listen to management commentary and they'd say, oh, yeah, like our cohort profitability in Texas went way up. And then in Texas, it's just why did the cohort profitability go up? It's because they were raising prices on everybody aggressively, not because their underwriting was so good or anything like that. And I just put all the evidence out there. I thought it was really clear cut. This is a car insurance company where their customer base is absolutely furious. This is way more excessive than any other car insurance company that may have these issues, but to a lesser extreme. The evidence is just there. They're going to experience a ton, a ton of churn going forward. There's a limit to how much you raise prices and regulators are going to get pissed. And all those things happened and the stock fell 95% plus. I think it's down almost 99% since its IPO. And these are the type of examples I like to say where a company can do something scummy that helps their short-term numbers, but harms their like long-term value, right? Making it difficult to cancel and price gouging helps your short-term numbers. It makes the numbers look good to Wall Street. If, to the person modeling it all out, it makes it look better, but it's not creating real value. It's, if anything, destroying goodwill and destroying value in the long run. So I try a lot to look for those disparities between a company that is antagonizing their customer base, doing something that's underhanded and is hurting long-term value, while it's actually showing the opposite in the numbers. Yeah, it seems like a good combination. Pissing off your customers and pissing off regulators is probably not going in well. That seems yeah. like the perfect kind of example of, of a company that took that route. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So another one I thought was interesting was Curiosity Stream. So it's a streaming platform. You wrote it up at 18 bucks. Now it's $1. So what, what happened with Curiosity Stream? You are VSG, you've done your work and you're really like scratching the backs of my memory because these are all like things I wrote on <laughs> a while ago. So Curiosity Stream, January 2020. Yeah. Geek SPAC Mania. They were an online streaming platform for documentaries. So maybe like a mini Netflix. And their whole thing was we own a ton of really, really great content. So invest in us because we own amazing content. And they said, we have a content library worth $1.3 billion. And, you know, I'm just curious about Curiosity Stream. So I just sign up like for $5 for their like streaming plan and start watching their videos. And it turns out that they said they had 919 original titles that comprise their $1.3 billion worth of content value. And if you look at their just original titles section on their website, most of it was like two or three minute videos. It was complete nonsense. It was like, <laughs> I'm looking at the article now, it's like they had one called The History of Telemedicine that was 93 seconds. What is a meteor? 45 seconds. <laughs> and so they were valuing their video, original content videos at around $1.4 million per title in their stock deck. But you look at the actual videos and they're literally a minute or two long, most of them. And they did have one or two like hour long videos and some 30 minute videos. But it was just like this company does not have a lot of quality content. Then you look up the other stuff and it's like a lot of their content was just pulled from YouTube. Like you could find the same exact thing on YouTube. And it's just like, okay, so you're really just like YouTube. You're like YouTube, but you filter out everything out and you just have education. They had these other top thing under the entrepreneurship section on their website was the David Rubenstein show where he interviews people. And I thought, oh, they have an exclusive deal with David Rubenstein for like extra podcast episodes or something. But no, it's literally just the same exact interviews you'd find on YouTube and elsewhere. And it was just like, just bizarre. And I just looked at the content and it's like, you, you got nothing special here. Maybe there's one thing I'd want to watch. You're going to churn like crazy. There's nothing super special here. You're definitely not an acquisition target because you got no special content. There's no, it's just another nonsense back. And I'm not really great at modeling it and saying, this is what the numbers will be, but I'm great with the spidey sense intuition of something is just wrong. And that was one where the stock fell 90% over the next year or so. Yeah, that was definitely a home run on that one. So let's talk about some of your more recent write-ups. Yeah. So I thought one of the most interesting ones was Coinbase. So I'm a crypto skeptic. The industry seems rife with fraud and problems. So I've just stayed away from it. So what are the key problems at Coinbase and say that crypto industry? So Coinbase is odd. 
where you say you're a crypto skeptic. I'm actually like kind of more neutral on Bitcoin. I can see some use cases. I'm not hugely skeptical. I think people, when they think of Coinbase, that it used to be the dominant platform for trading crypto, right? It's a commodity. There's tons of little, like you can trade crypto on Coinbase. You can trade crypto on Robinhood. You can yeah. trade crypto on Webull. You can trade crypto on SoFi. You can trade crypto on anywhere. Right. So it's like the whole Coinbase edge is gone in some sort of way. And all these other competitors to trade crypto have these structural advantages where they can use crypto as a loss leader to get new customers. Robinhood wants new customers to trade crypto on its platform and they can do it at zero commissions because then they can upsell you on the equity trading or upsell you on margin loans or SoFi offers crypto trading for free because then you might get your education loans financed through them or you might get your banking done through them. So Coinbase is kind of at a structural disadvantage here because they only do crypto. And the other advantage, the differentiator with Coinbase is they specialize in this long tail of coins. They have more coins listed than just about anybody else, but that also increases their legal liability and legal risk because the SEC will say they're offering securities. And you can trade Bitcoin and Ethereum and maybe like the more real legitimate cryptos on all these platforms. It's only Coinbase where you can trade sushi coin and pancake swap and whatever nonsense <laughs> coins are, right? Yeah. It's like, how much value is there? That was one time thing. And then you look at the Coinbase's like other business model and it's they partner with the stable coin USDC that is effectively, if you have money in a Coinbase account, instead of it sitting in US dollars, it sits in USD coin and USD coin has the dollars backing it, but they're earning three, four, 5% interest on it. And Coinbase gets like a 30% kickback from that. But USD coin is becoming a lot less popular and it's also under regulatory scrutiny and Coinbase isn't even profitable. So if it's losing tons of money and you've got a ton of big headwinds, i.e. tons of new competition, the appetite for these nonsense coins is going way down. You're like kind of free interest income from your partnership with USD coin is going down. That's all problematic. Plus they have like industry high commissions that are going to need to come down in the future. Plus, I think the management team is extremely, extremely weak. I am not a Brian Armstrong fan. I recommend everybody who's invested in Coinbase or interested in shorting it, just listen to an hour-long podcast interview of him. He's not stupid. He's not an idiot, but I don't think he's like prime time awesome. This guy's an incredible CEO. He seems to have antagonized every single regulator possible. This is something to me that's just going to continue to bleed and bleed money. There's not a clear company that would want to acquire it, right? It's just such like a controversial space. It's going to be a volatile company. It's going to be all over the place. But I think it's possible you can be kind of a Bitcoin bull like me and think there's value in maybe a Bitcoin or some of these decentralized currencies while also being a Coinbase skeptic and saying, hey, this platform is past its prime. It earned a ton when it was the dominant platform in 2020 and 2021. But now there's actually tons of competition that has structural advantages. Coinbase has bad leadership and is losing money going into an environment that's only going to be tougher and tougher, this company isn't worth a lot and definitely not worth $25 billion. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, even if you believe in something like Bitcoin, I mean, why wouldn't you just buy Bitcoin on Robinhood or something like that? Like you point out, I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Okay, so that's Coinbase. So another one I thought was interesting was Airbnb. So I'm a hotel guy. I definitely prefer just checking into a hotel and kind of doing whatever I want with the room and not having anyone bother me instead of having like a list of things I need to do from the owner. So why is Airbnb a good short? VSG, I'd love to talk about Airbnb. And if we can, after Airbnb, if we could talk about Hershey's, that's the other one I'd really love to talk about a little bit. Yeah, I actually have Hershey on my watch list as like a company I always thought was wonderful. I can't wait to hear you talk about why it's not wonderful anymore. Maybe perfect, I could get, get it off my watch list. I'll answer your Airbnb first, though. Since okay. Airbnb... It's a little different than most of mine, where it's not like I think the company is evil or I think Brian Chesky is an awful dude or anything. I think the market is just how people view it 
And what it's becoming are two different things where I say in the Bear Cave article, investors view Airbnb as a secular play on travel, a royalty on exploration, and a trusted and indispensable marketplace for millions of disjointed listings from homeowners across the globe. That's where Airbnb started. It's just a bunch of people putting up their extra house or their spare bedroom on this marketplace. And it's for like solo travelers as an alternative to hotels. I think Airbnb has kind of lost that. That like just hotels are better. If you're an individual traveling, there's no way you're staying in an yeah. Airbnb. Hotels are often cheaper. There's tons of horror stories. It turns out the logistics of having all these individuals with own like people are finding hidden cameras and bathrooms. People are finding like carbon monoxide to poisoning in random houses. It's kind of a mess have these like individuals who spoke listings. Every individual, if you're traveling, would now prefer a hotel over an Airbnb. What Airbnb is good for, where the market kind of works, is group travel. And what people might not notice about the platform, or at least in my view, is it shifted a lot from individual hosts to professional hosts, i.e. hosts that own multiple properties, multiple nice properties, that can accommodate groups. And I'm not saying that's not a valuable business for Airbnb to be the platform for that, but it's just less valuable. Where if Airbnb is any one market having 10,000 individual homeowners, it's like the balance of powers with Airbnb. But if Airbnb is really just a marketplace for the 10 group rental home companies, in that city, then it's still a valuable marketplace, but the axis of power changes a bit, where Airbnb almost functions a little bit like an Expedia, where you look on Expedia and it's like, here's the 10 airlines your needs. Airbnb is like, here's the 10 kind of rental property companies that can fulfill your needs. And then here's a list of all their properties. And the problem with that is all these professional property management groups are now building out their own sites and saying, why do we need Airbnb? So the genesis of my skepticism on Airbnb was partly hearing from all my friends, like their growing negativity towards the brand. But I planned a birthday party for myself every year. And I was looking on Airbnb for the property I wanted to like host 10, 15 of my friends. And I found this really nice thing. And I like Googled the management company for this nice like property. And it turned out their own site where you could book directly with them. And it was cheaper than booking on Airbnb. And it's clear they preferred you to book with them than on Airbnb. I'm like, I didn't know this was a thing that most Airbnbs, you can actually Google the management group and you know they have their own site where you can book directly with them for cheaper. And then I booked with them. And then after booking with them, they like made very clear, we want you to book with us directly on the future and not on Airbnb. And we'll give you discounts to book with us. And it's like, as these property management groups, I totally get it. Why do you want to be at the whims of the Airbnb platform? Why do you want them taking a 14% cut? Why do you want them in charge of dispute resolution? Why do you want them owning a customer relationship? You want the customer's email. You want the ability to market to them. You want the discounts. You want the ability to resolve disputes. You want to be able to market things the way you want. So there's all these structural changes to the way Airbnb is being done that I don't think the market is picking up on. And you've got a lot of these individuals that went into bear Airbnb home ownership that I think might be underwater with rising rates and property values going down. And that could be another contributing factor. So I kind of view the future of Airbnb as much different than most investors, where I believe the future is there's going to be a bunch of these professional group property management companies that 10, 20, 50 properties in any given city that can accommodate group travel. And they use Airbnb as one of the sources of lead generation to fill that need, in addition to having their own sites and own marketing. And it's just like Airbnb is still valuable for that, but it becomes like a more or less valuable site like Expedia rather than the one and only trusted listing service, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. All right. So Hershey, I have always wanted to own Hershey. It's always been too expensive for me. I've been waiting for an opportunity for maybe it to get cheap. To me, it seems like people are always going to be eating Reese's peanut butter cups and Hershey bars, and it's never really going to go away. They're gas station staples, they're Halloween staples. So why is that not the case? What happened to Hershey? So VSG, let me first say, I would agree with you as of a month ago. My line of thinking on Hershey's was... If you go to some of my old podcasts, I would use Hershey's as an example of a company that I would never bet against. 
Because to me, when you think of Hershey's, it's almost certainly a company that's going to be bigger 10 years from now, right? Although type of problems that a company like Hershey would have, you would think would just be short-term hiccups, like cocoa prices go up, margins go down. Yeah. But it's a type of company people will buy. You would think people will buy more Hershey's bar in the future. They'll buy more Reese's in the future. There's some room to increase prices. This is an incredibly high-quality business, been around for 130 years with dominant brands, like you noted, Hershey's and Reese's and a few other smaller things. $50 billion market cap, $10 billion in sales, trading at 30 times earnings. It's kind of like priced really richly because the market appreciates that and that's how they view Hershey's. Now, kind of game changer, and this is going to sound weird, and I got so much flack for this on Twitter, is there's this big, big YouTuber who I love, who everybody should know. His name's Jimmy Donaldson. He's 25 years old. He's a channel called Mr. Beast. He is the biggest YouTube creator ever. And I'm talking hundreds of millions of views every month just on YouTube. Ask any 14-year-old and they'll know who he is. He is a dominant, dominant, dominant media personality, especially among this next generation. And he launched his one basic company then is like YouTube, TikTok, and social media empire is Feastables, which is this chocolate brand that is now directly competing with Hershey's and has a bunch of different chocolate bars. And you'd say, oh my gosh, this sounds so silly, Edwin. What are you talking about? And people on Twitter, Feastables Chocolate Company was launched in January 2020. Its first three month sales were like in the tens of millions of dollars, which is a lot, but not like significant to this $10 billion Hershey market cap, $10 billion Hershey annual sales. And everybody was just roasting me saying, this is so immaterial. It doesn't matter if a creator creates a chocolate brand and it gets tens or even a hundred million in sales. That's not going to put it in the $10 billion for Hershey's. I think people like, this is the creator brand that is the exception to the rule. By the end of 2022, last year, they were literally distributed in every Walmart store. If you go to any Walmart location, you'll see there's Hershey's and you'll see their Feastable bars right next to it. Then this year, they've been added to Safeway, to Speedway, to 7-Eleven. Wow. Just this month, they were added to all the Targets. And literally, like, you know, in my article, I'm showing photos from Targets. If you go to Target now, it used to be a wall of Hershey's and a wall of Reese's. Now it's a wall of Hershey's, a wall of Reese's, but the wall of Hershey's is slightly less longer. And there's Feastable bars next to the Hershey's. I didn't realize it had that level of distribution. It's insane levels, like insane. If you look at all the pot, they they were in 4,000, all 4,000 Walmarts end of last year. At the end of this year, they think they're going to be in 40 to 50,000 retail stores. They are, you listen to Mr. Beast's interviews, he says they're the highest selling chocolate brand skew by far. My understanding the way a lot of these grocery stores and retailers work is they like reset the amount of space they give to all these brands every year. So when those resets happen, I kind of expect that Feastables is going to get a lot more space because it is it is kind of off the charts popular. And keep in mind, candy and you know chocolate and this type of stuff, it's big among kids, the parents of kids and people buying candy for kids. So this demographic is like very, very important to this chocolate and snack business. Now, the kind of huge question here is, how big is it? How much in sales is it going to do? Because Feastables, it's a private company, so we don't have the sales figures. But if you just look at like the interviews, every time they're like, it's killing it. It's really got escape velocity here. In one podcast, the manager for Feastables said, you know, just earlier this month, we think in Halloween alone, we can do 100 to $200 million. So if we take wow. that at face value, we're saying ballpark. If in Halloween alone or in October alone, you're doing 100 to 200 million, ballpark here, you're doing around 500 million this year. That seems to me to be like the right ballpark number, $500 million in chocolate sales this year, primarily through retail, primarily right next to the Hershey bars. Okay, so Hershey sells in their North America chocolate segment, which is their biggest chocolate segment, about $8 billion. And Feastables is doing 500 million completely out of the blue. Are you telling me that's going to have zero effect? I'm not sure it has zero effect. I'm not, it's obviously not going to send a Hershey's down 10% in volume, but could it send it down 1% or 2%? Totally. And if Hershey's is one of these companies that already volumes are kind of flat, growing 1% or 2%, that mainly their growth comes through pricing, it's like this is the type of thing that could have a bigger effect on the multiple than you might expect. And more importantly, 
Feastables is going to get bigger and bigger going into 2024 and 2025. What if in 2024, this thing is doing a billion, billion and a half, and you have Hershey's volume is declining 5%, which I think is possible. That would be a huge multiple re-rate. This goes from a 30 times earning stock to a 20 or 15 times earning stock and three, 4% decline in revenue leads to a higher decline in profits. You could see like, I think a big C shift here. Now, so Feastables, big, big problem from that perspective. And then the thing most CPG investors think, most Wall Street investors think, what everybody like, I think who's a professional here would say is, look, Edwin, you're a little naive because these chocolate brands, you're, these the creator brands, they get launched, but the sales numbers just aren't the same ballpark as Hershey's. But we address that. They're like getting size. They generally don't get distribution. Here, they're getting tons of distribution. And what every investor will say is, well, I mean, worst case scenario, Hershey's just buys them. Hershey's is a $50 billion company. They'll just spend a billion dollars to buy Feastables. And to that, I linked to a podcast interview in the last post where the manager for Feastables was interviewed this month. And he was asked, if one of the big CPG players came and gave you like a big offer, would you take it? What would it take? And they said, given a multi-billion dollar buyout offer today, we wouldn't take it because the growth is just too big. The market opportunity is too big. And we're very much in inning one. And it's like, okay, that made me think this is a little different than perhaps all these creator-led startups. Because they're explicit. They are looking to compete. Mr. Beast is 25. He's got the most dominant, like, YouTube channel and audience ever with a huge contingent of like the chocolate community following. It's has the chance, has the opportunity to shake things up in the Hershey space. I don't think it's really on the radar of anybody and it's completely dismissed. Even after I wrote this, it's completely dismissed. Where I think what you could see in a worst case scenario for Hershey's is Feastables comes in a year from now, it's billion and a half dollars of chocolate sales. It causes a 5% volume decline for Hershey's or something that's like gets picked up in the numbers. Plus you have this, I think, general health trend in the United States where just chocolate and salty snacks and unhealthy snacks are becoming a little less fashionable. Plus you've got Wegovy and these miracle like weight loss drugs that suppress the appetite for a lot of these unhealthy things. I think that could be a little bit of a headwind or a material headwind. And you, you put this all together and you see this company that's just totally impenetrable, like the biggest moat of all moats. And I say, actually, the world's changing a lot and things do change, not always, but things sometimes do change. And the Hershey's footing isn't so solid as you may think. And there's a good chance this could be one of those stocks that just like the seas of change work in weird ways. The other example I like to give is Buffett always says chewing gum sales would never decline. He used that as an example of like chewing gum sales. I know one thing, which is 10 years from now, people will still be chewing gum. But if you mm -hmm. actually look, the retail sales of like people buying chewing gum has declined a ton. And one reason for that people think is because now everybody has iPhones. So when you're in the checkout aisles of grocery stores, instead of looking at all the chewing gum and stuff you could buy, you're looking at your phones and you're distracted. <laughs> wow, like, I never thought of that. work in weird ways. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous. Somebody makes a new chocolate brand that takes 5-10% market share from Hershey's. I think it's very, very possible and everybody is totally sleeping on like the scale here. Just because to investors, you've seen the pattern recognition 10 times and the last 100 creator brands, 50 fails, 40 are fads, and the 10 that eventually get some distribution barely make a dent and then are bought out. And because you've seen that playbook 100 times, you think this time is not different. And I believe this time with Feastables, it has a chance of shaking things up. Wow. Yeah, I have to do some research and try out Feastables. <laughs> and yeah, and most importantly, <laughs> ask any 12, 10, 14-year-old kid, hey, do you want a Hershey's bar? Do you want a Feastables bar? That's what matters. Yeah, absolutely. They're making that decision about what candy is going to be popular. Kind of reminds me of what happened with Dollar Shave Club and the razor industry like 10 years ago. It seems a lot very similar to that. Except for the fact Dollar Shave Club accepted the buyout offer and was just marketing and it yeah. wasn't necessarily a new product. This I would say has, and Dollar Shave Club, like a lot of these companies are really marketing companies where Mr. B's structural advantage here is he doesn't need to pay for marketing. He just promotes it in his videos. It's literally nuts. He's getting hundreds of millions of dollars of just ad impressions in his own YouTube videos. He's got Pete Davidson and Tom Brady eating the bars. He's sending it to all these other YouTubers. He's 
adults, like the average 45-year-old, you know, wealthy investor might not see it because they don't traffic in these corners of the internet as much. Yeah, yeah. But he's got huge, huge, like, even though he might not be spending billions of dollars on advertising, he's getting billions of dollars worth of eyeballs just promoting it in his own unique way. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and you're right, Dollar Shave Club, they were okay with, they said, hey, okay, we'll take a billion dollars. That sounds pretty good. If he can actually build a business bigger than that, I guess, yeah, it could be a major threat to Hershey, especially considering the valuation and how it trades like it's a stock that could never be disrupted. It seems like it's already being disrupted. This thing is 18 months old and within 12 months it's in every Walmart next to Hershey's and now it's in tons of retail locations next to Hershey's. And hey, a year from now, could it IPO and you have like a competing, they've publicly said they're going after Hershey's, like Hershey's is their target. And a year from now, two years from now, could the market look like, hey, we've got a Hershey's, the $50 billion chocolate company, and we have Feastables, the upstart $4 billion chocolate company that's rapidly gaining share. And I see Hershey's, the stock declining 50%, Feastables killing it, and everybody being like, where in the world did this come from? But I think the signs are all there if you're looking in advance. Yeah, and you're right. It's just not on the radar of your typical investor who's like over 40 and <laughs> has no concept of any of this. So, yeah, yeah, I like to joke, like same thing back to Rave, my big long, my favorite types of stocks. I always think to myself, the one, the stock I would get long, the type of things I'd get long are businesses that sell to women or businesses that sell to low income people. Because I think those types of businesses, they the traction and signs will be there before Wall Street picks it up. If there's a business that does well with wealthy 40 to 60-year-old men, Wall Street will price it correctly just <laughs> like that. But if there's a business that, that sells to the demographics that aren't Wall Street, you can like look at all the dollar stores. It's like the signs were there before they got properly valid. Like there's like a processing delay of a few years before like Lululemon or something. There's like a big processing delay in how Wall Street sees it. And it will constantly be undervaluing it, constantly get good opportunities to invest in it. So those are the types of, and same thing with Feastables here. It's gonna be totally off the radar. And then it's gonna take 2% share and people will be like, well, now it's priced in and then it's gonna take 4% share. And then eventually everyone will be like, what the hell just happened? Super interesting. Yeah. So you hopefully saved me from buying Hershey after it gets beaten up because I would have certainly gone long Hershey after dust up like that. Cool. So this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I've really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you for your time today. For the audience, what are the best places to reach you and learn more about you? The best thing is just Google Edwin Dorsey. My Twitter will come up. I'm at Stock Jabber or Google the Bear Cave newsletter and it'll come up. Or you can just go to the bearcave.substack.com. And, you know, I'm really responsive. So you can reach out to me anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Absolutely. This was a blast. Thanks so much. And thanks for the great questions. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.